This was an epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the Roman Empire, and we are going through the whole epistle and not skipping over any passages, and some of these are very difficult, and these are difficult, uh, weighty issues, but they're very, very important. So let's give our attention. Uh, We're in chapter 6, verse 12. It's in the bulletin. Um, It's also in the pew Bible. It's in front of you. Um, Let's give attention to God's word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Pray for us. Father, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you'd make clear this passage and that you would apply the blood of Christ afresh to consciences that need to be washed and cleansed. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be here at work among us and in us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul is dealing with an abuse of freedom. And uh, right in the middle of this epistle, he's dealing with three different problems where there was kind of a libertine group and, you know, there was, so there was kind of the, the, the Platonist or the pragmatist, and they're a group that was really pushing for their freedoms. And then you got another group that were prudes, and we'll deal with them in two weeks. But if you jump ahead to chapter one, he says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There were people that were saying, this is what it's to be about, that we're not to be near a woman. And so he, he's gonna deal with the prudes later in chapter seven. And uh, Paul is, is not for, for either one. He has a, a middle ground that he is arguing about uh, sexuality, uh, both um, dealing with here at the end of, ch- end of chapter 6 and then chapter 7. But the three issues that he's been dealing with, the first issue of abuse of freedom is there's a man that was sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul had to deal with that in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, the very first half, is the people are suing each other. They're saying, well, it's our freedom, it's our right to sue, and since I'm, I've been wronged, I'm going to sue you. And Pastor Ben preached about that last week, and Paul's answer was, why not, rather be, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not take one for the team? When you do this, you defraud your brothers, and you're doing this before unbelievers. And he's saying, look, there's a watching world that's watching and the church is to be different. And so now at the end of the, this chapter, he's dealing with another libertine issue that there's, they are dealing with sexual immorality, and it's this Greek word, porneia. And basically, uh, this word refers to all sexual sin outside of heterosexual marriage. All sexual sin outside of heterosexual marriage. If you're wondering, what does this word mean? Well, it's referring to fornication, homosexuality, adultery, they all would fit into that larger category of sexual immorality or porneia. 
So Paul is dealing with the Christians here who are abusing their freedoms and having sex with prostitutes. Now, many of you here will think, well, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> Have nothing to do with prostitutes, never do such a thing. Well, in Corinth and around Rome, if you were widowed, I mean, here's the reality. There wasn't many single people in that culture. You got married at a very young age, okay? Mary and Joseph, you know, they got married young. And then you have, um, you know, you've got, if you were widowed and you didn't marry within two years of being widowed, you would be fined by the government. So Caesar would come after you like big government today. And if you're not having health care insurance, you got to pay the big fines. Well, the big fine was if you were widowed and didn't remarry in two years. So the government didn't believe. So when, when we get to chapter 7 and Paul talks about singleness and... Um, it's very liberating. It is profound what he's saying about singleness because it, well, it didn't really exist. The point was when people were, you know, today people just sleep around all the time because there's all these single people. And that day people would just go to the temple and there were male prostitutes and female prostitutes. And it's probably a lot like today how people look at pornography. It was a very common outlet for sexuality. And so the people were, were going to the temple and... Even as Christians, people were coming out of that lifestyle and still justifying their going to the temple. And, and the idea of going to the temple was that somehow the God of that temple was going to give you certain blessings if you united with the prostitute who's representing uh, the God and goddess. And there's blessings that come with uh, blessings of financial blessings, blessings of rain and God providing crops and all this is, you know, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on there. But certainly uh, demonic activity gets involved with all that as well. So the idea to Corinthian, Corinthianize was a term that was coined was to go to the temple and sleep with a prostitute. And so Paul is having to deal with this and he's dealing with it on a, on a multi-level uh, on many levels here. So first he starts with the two slogans that were being used in the day. And the two slogans were in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's what the people were saying. It was a little catchphrase. All things are lawful. We can do whatever we want. We're free. We have freedom. All things are lawful. And then the second one was food for the stomach, stomach for food, meat for the belly, belly for meat. And the idea is that sex is just an appetite. And just as food goes through you and is eliminated and destroyed, your body's going to be eliminated, going to be destroyed. You're going to rot in the heart of the earth. Your body's going to be no more. So it's just like an appetite. Eat, drink, be merry. That was what he's dealing with, okay? So the first jingle, all things are lawful. And today, you know, we, we, we have our own little jingles. And I, I can remember in college, some of the kids that were the wildest kids had a sign out in front of their door that said, love God and do what you please. And they were quoting Augustine. And I'm thinking, I think you forgot the first half of the slogan and only got the second half of do what you please. But that was a big Augustine quote was love God and do what you please. Well, because if you're really loving God, do what you please. But if you're not emphasizing the first half, you end up into some abuses in the second half. So that's one we have today. Another one is, you know, people will say today, well, if it feels good, do it. What I do with my personal life is none of your business. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? It actually says a lot about that. 
if you want to be an, an officer in the church, or then we've got to look at your personal life. Uh, so very much so. Um, another one is, you know, like what stays in, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I've even heard, uh, one time I heard a Christian say, I can still look at the menu, I just can't order. Referring to it's okay to lust just as long as I don't commit the act. Uh, not so. So there's a lot of those kind of slogans that get thrown around today. So Paul's response to the first slogan, all things are lawful, is to add a few qualifications. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And literally the word is profitable. So Paul just wants to say, look, all things are lawful, but not everything is profitable. Maybe to give you an illustration, you're free to buy any stock you want in the stock market. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I mean, you could have purchased Blockbuster stock in the early 2000s. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I came across a funny article this week, and the title was it, uh, that Blockbuster is paying the ultimate late fee. And I got a, a nice chuckle out of that because they made millions and millions on late fees, and we were all the victims of those late fees. Well, they were the late ones to get on board when they could have bought Netflix for a nickel. I mean, very small amount. But they said, no, no, we've just, we're so big. Who's Netflix, you know? And now they're paying the ultimate late fee. Uh, so the idea is, is all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And so Paul is, is wanting to, to rethink your freedoms in light of Scripture. There are many things that you can do in this life but is it really profitable? Is it benefiting you? Is it helpful? These are good ethical questions. This is kind of like the one guardrail. He's got two guardrails he's gonna put up for freedom. First one is, is it really helpful? So ask yourself, is it profiting me physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally? Is this profit me? Whether I'm watching this movie, whether I'm engaging with this uh, person, whether I'm going to date this person, whether I'm going to marry this person, whatever I'm going to do, whether I'm going to take this job, whether I'm going to go here or there, you want to ask yourself, okay, I've got freedoms, but is it really profitable? Is this, is this what's good for me? Okay? So, um, so that's the first one. The other guardrail, though, is the next one he puts up. All things are lawful, but, not, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And so, is your freedom actually working jujitsu against you? Meaning, is it turned around on you and bring you into bondage? And now you're proclaiming how free you are, and yet your freedom is actually a bondage. You know, like I'm as free as a bird now, and all, all free birds is singing about is how these birds you can't change, and I can't change, I can't change, because he's a slave to sin, and he's leaving her, even though he's claiming he's free, he's in total bondage. Right? So sometimes people are claiming I've got these freedoms and that their freedom is bringing them into bondage. I got a friend who's a P PCA pastor, good friend of mine. So I'm at General Assembly this year. He's now a teetotaler. He doesn't drink at all. He realized for him this was a vice and it was trouble. He told me, we talked about a General Assembly, he said, I could have gotten a DUI, you know? So he just doesn't even know, no alcohol. We had a pastor in our presently, presbytery recently who was disciplined for abusing alcohol, ultimately had to resign from the church, and some of you, some of you know that church. Um, so what are the things that bring you under, under, and they can be good things, 
I mean, I've talked to people. I, ha- I had to get rid of my Fox News app because it was like there's so much smut at the bottom. It was bringing me down. Just get rid of the app. Talked to somebody outside the, the Bleacher Report app had too many sexually suggestive stuff, so they just stopped reading the app. What do you got to get rid of that brings you, that's bringing you into slavery? You see, you got two guardrails, okay? And that's what Paul's getting at. A train is free when it's on the tracks. If it's off the tracks, it's freely going to crash. It's really not free. A fireplace is called a fireplace for a reason. It's a safe place for a fire in your house. You're free to start a fire in your house but please use the fireplace, because if you don't use the fireplace, they're going to be calling the fire trucks. You're going to do some terrible damage with your freedoms. So, that's, so that, there we have the first slogan. The other is food for the stomach. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. And the idea is that the Corinthians were treating sex like an appetite. And they're saying, look, just as you have a desire for food and you need to eat, this is part of who I am. This is part of my... Uh, I have an appetite for, for sex. I need to appease that. And so it's interesting. C.S. Lewis actually talks about this when he says in uh, Mere Christianity, he says, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, but just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that that country had, that something had gone wrong with their appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was equally, something equally queer about the state of sex instinct among us? You see, the mutton chop and the bit of bacon is a woman with hardly any clothes now. And it sells everything in our culture. From beer to razors to acne medicine, to shampoo, vacations, football. And there's this crazy commercial, I can't figure it out, where they got this water thing and they've got like these two people with hardly any clothes throwing water over their face. And we don't, we're not gonna need some sleazy commercial to show actors with hardly any clothes throwing water and yet they're doing that in the background or something. It's like, what is that? You're telling me that's supposed to make me buy the water? Do you guys know the commercial I'm talking about? I mean, it's bizarre. It's like, what is this? So the idea is that sex is selling everything and it's just is what C.S. Lewis described as an appetite where if you saw this and went to another culture and you saw them having this weird attraction for food like that, you'd be like, something's wrong with that country. Well, let's dig a little deeper. He says that the, the attitude of their mind was God will destroy both one and the other, meaning they're both headed for the same destination. Food is digested, eliminated out of the body, and our body's going to go into the dust of the earth. Both are headed for destruction. So the deeper underpinning here is a worldview of Platonism and Gnosticism that the soul is good and the body is bad. And when we die, we finally get rid of the body. But since we have these urges now in the body, we need to feed them. And so the view of the body was erroneous on many levels, was it not? So that's what Paul's getting at here. We know that Jesus came down from heaven. God is a spirit, has not a body like us. Yet Jesus Christ took on a body. He took to himself a body. The word incarnation is just a Latin word for in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't sin and take in a body to himself. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't a ghost or some type of phantom. And we have three different accounts of him eating. 
in his resurrection accounts. So when he, he, one time he asks for fish and eats it, he makes breakfast for the disciples before he restores Peter and they eat fish and he broke bread and was revealed among them on the walk from Emmaus and he's eating there. So three different times he's, you know, and ghosts don't eat last time I checked, okay? Um, so Jesus as the second Adam is redeeming humanity. He shows us the value of the body. And the word body is used seven times in these very verses. Paul keeps emphasizing the body, the body, the body. And the conclusion of this section is to glorify God in our bodies because our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that should, if you're reading this and you're in Corinth, you would instantly get the connection. They were going to a temple and doing awful things and he's saying the temple is now right here. And the dwelling place of God and it's a pretty vivid illustration. You know, it's like, you know, most people would think, you know, you're not gonna do something sinful in the temple. Like that's a holy place. You wouldn't think, oh, let's go, let's go mess around in the temple of God. And Paul's saying, well, that's, that's in you now. That is the holy place. It's right here in your hearts and lives. And so our body is the temple and God's gonna raise this body from the dead just as he raised Jesus from the dead, verse 14. And last but not least, but he says our bodies are now members of Christ. And so Paul is taking down the Gnosticism, taking down Platonism with these, uh, as he's teaching this. And so our future as Christians is not a redemption from the body, but the redemption is will be for our bodies, okay? So we're not getting rid of our bodies, okay? The Christian body is destined for resurrection, not simply for rotting. We do for a time get separated, body goes into the grave, but when God comes back, he raises us up, reunites our bodies with our souls, and we will have bodies forever, okay? And that's part of what Paul's getting at here. And so this was a, a, a view that, that the body was bad and that there wasn't any future for the body. And so uh, they're treating it as just an appetite. And so if you dig a little deeper with that, um, the idea is that there's just some wrong views of like eschatology here. It's kind of like Christians who think that you can't, we gotta get to the beach as much as possible in this life. Since, since you know, Revelation says there'll be no more sea. You know? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. That, that, there's going to be oceans in heaven, okay? When, 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 when heaven comes down, a new heaven, new earth, we're going to enjoy the beach, okay? So you don't need to feel like you need to run to the beach now all the time. And that's what people are thinking. Well, I better get as much sex as I can now because this is it. I think that's erroneous thinking. So dig deeper. What is Paul getting at here? Is he's getting at um, this idea that... Um, this life is all there is, was the idea of the, of the Corinthians. And Tim Keller has this quote from this guy named Ernest Becker. And Tim Keller's in New York City and dealing with lots of secular people. But he's dealing with this guy, he talks about this guy, Ernest Becker, who was a Jewish cultural anthropologist, not a believer. And several times he quotes from him in his sermons because he wrote this book called The Denial of Death, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1974. So he's saying this a little while ago, and this is what Ernest Becker says. He says, we are the first society, secular Western society, who has a widespread belief that there is no ultimate future. We're the first society that's secular. 
which means it's widespread among many people that when you die, you go to extinction. Your personal consciousness is temporary. When you die, that's it. When the sun dies, all of civilization goes away and nobody will be there around to even remember it. And Ernest Becker says there's never been a society that's had such a, an understanding of the insignificance of human life, never. And as a result, there's never been a society that puts so much emphasis on finding your one true love, because this is it. There's never been a society that's put so much emphasis on romance and true love, here's why. Because secular people still need to know that their lives matter in the grand scheme of things. In the grand scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher meaning and trust and gratitude. If we no longer have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways it occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that human beings need in our innermost being, we, now not, we no longer look to God, we look for it in the love partner. And what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to get rid of all of our faults. We want to get rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption. That's called idolatry because God is being replaced with the partner. And so he says, we live in a culture, we live in a society that says without sex and romance and love, you cannot possibly be satisfied. And the problem with this view is that this romantic solution and sex itself can never deliver the goods like it's promised. And so when it says here, it says when we have sex, we are joined. And so look at this word here in verse um, uh, 14. He goes on and says, um, here it is, verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. And then he goes on and says in verse 17, he was joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. Same word, and this idea, this idea of joining is that what sex does is it's a glue. And that's literally what the word means. If you look at the Greek lexicon for this word, it means joined. It's, it's an adhesive. It's a glue. It's meant to be a weld. It's a grazing, it, it's a covenant commitment that involves so much more than a physical act. C.S. Lewis, again, Amir Christianity says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of, merit, outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all other kinds of unions which are meant to go along, along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure. We'll get to that in chapter seven. It means that you mustn't isolate the pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. I mean, Lewis is actually com comparing fornication with bulimia. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's something terribly wrong with this. And so Paul has three do you not know statements in this text. Do you see them? He says it three times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? So he says in verse 15, in verse 16, and again in verse 19, they all begin with do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And what is he getting at? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And don't you, do you not know that he was cemented to a prostitute becomes one body with her and the idea and he says for it's written the two will become one flesh he's not saying you become one body and don't you realize when you come together you're becoming one body he's saying this one flesh idea is so much more than a physical act there's so much more than that 
He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, the whole thing of, of marriage itself, that the two will become one flesh, happens with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 2. But when Paul quotes that in Genesis 5, he says, I'm speaking about Christ and the church. So the whole idea of marriage on earth is just a heavenly drama of something much greater, talking about Christ's love for his church. And so the best that this world can give is the signpost. It just is a signpost. It's meant to point to something greater. And it's meant to talk about the greater reality of being one with God. And all of scripture keeps talking about a marriage supper with the lamb and a consummation and God coming down again and everything being made right and us um, being a part of this marriage supper of the lamb and Jesus as the bridegroom and we're the bride and all of this imagery is playing on this idea that we're united to Christ and that we will be one with him. And we are even called now as partakers of the divine nature. There's something uh, incredible about that, that all that the signposts can do is be pointers in this life. And they're, and they're special and they're, they're wonderful. But if we make a God out of them, then they become, as C.S. Lewis says, a demon. And so they end up ruining us. And instead of, so sex is meant to bond together, but if it's done outside the context of marriage, what Paul's saying is wrong with it is it actually destroys community and it destroys ourselves. If we try to rip apart what's been glued together, there's no such thing as a normal breakup after you've been physically intimate. You're talking utter pain. I remember reading a book that Somebody in the church gave me, it was by a, a medical doctor who was a woman and she worked with all of these youth and she said the number one cause of depression with high school kids, without a doubt, was promiscuity. And she just saw a direct one-to-one -one correlation. Sexually active, depressed. Because they're it, was, it was totally destroying them. It was not delivering the goods. Here it's meant to be this adhesive, this bond, this cement, and now you're ripping it apart and then trying to glue it together with somebody else and it's, it's not working. It's this bonding epoxy that, that solders us and grazes and welds us together. And, and if, when, it's not, when it's not done in its proper context, instead of it actually making us closer in this covenant commitment, it actually does the opposite. It actually makes us lonelier, and it actually makes us more frustrated and empty. You see, and it's this interesting thing about, um, I would say that, that the Lord's Supper is, is also like this, and sex and the Lord's Supper, I would say, are similar in that they're signposts that directly point us to the marriage relationship to Christ. And they're a great reminder that we're joined to the Lord. He's our husband. We're waiting for our bridegroom, waiting for the consummation, waiting for the wedding feast. And it's a foretaste of what's to come. And when we come to communion, we're reminded that he gave everything for us. And it's this fresh covenant commitment that we in turn give everything to him and we yield to him. And it's a fresh covenant renewal. And that's what intimacy is meant to be in marriage. It's a covenant renewal. R.C. Sproul put it like this, the marriage state is the image of my relationship to God in a profound way. Both my relationship to God and my relationship to my wife involve a covenant structure in which mutual parties are bound to each other by commitment sealed with oaths. Both involve knowing and intimacy. Both cre create a place where I can be naked and unashamed. 
But if we think like Voltaire, who was this French Enlightenment thinker who said, God made sex, but priests made marriage, then you're applying this adhesive bond of sex and turning it into an appetite to be used whenever you want outside the bonds of marriage. It leads to destruction, depression, deep disappointment, and resentment. And you start to listen. Just listen to what you're hearing on the radio. Listen to what you're actually seeing. When Tina Turner says, you know, what's love got to do with it, right? She says, um, you make my pulse react. That's the only thrill. That's the only thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's only physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Really, she's, she's trying to ignore that. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Ouch. She's just saying she's becoming hardened, and now it's actually working against her. It's meant to be this glue for your spouse. And so I want to just encourage you, young people, uh, particularly you that are, uh, thinking about relationships someday. I mean, this is important to just give your heart once, give your body once. Isn't that great if you can do that? Because you avoid a lot of damage. You avoid a lot of hurt, and it's what God's plan that points to this greater signpost of being one with him. And so uh, he gives this command here, and he says, flee sexual immorality. There's two commands, and they're both in light of who you are. So the indicatives always drive the imperatives and Paul's writing meaning that, that who you are tells you about the commands. There's only two commands in this text. What are the two commands? Flee sexual immorality, glorify God in your body. And the reason you're to flee sexual immorality is because of who you are. What does he say who you are now? He's saying this whole thing is that your, your members are body, your, your members of Christ and so it's like, would you take Jesus on a date with the devil? Would you take Jesus with you to say, hey, we're going to go and, and do something terrible? Jesus doesn't want to do that. And so the idea of, of flee sexual morality, notice it doesn't say resist or fight. You fight a war you can win. You flee in a war you're going to lose. Paul says flee, not flight. The way to win is to run away. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't be captured by her eyelids. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or be captivated with her eyes. When Paul says, you know, I beat my body and make it my slave, you know what that word literally means? It means give yourself a black eye. That's literally what it means. Boof! I mean, Joseph, he didn't, he didn't say, okay, when the situation came, he didn't say, well, let's resist. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let me try to win her over to my way of thinking. You know, let me try to convince her this isn't right. Does it say any of that? It, it says that he, he ran out of the house and fled when Potter's wife came to him. And he refused to be near her. And he applied strict control over himself and put safeguards in place. So when she tried to seduce him, he didn't apply some, you know, let's try to, to think about this or, or fight this or resist this. It was R-U-N, run. And so that's what he's saying here for us is that, you know, it's like, okay, let's just, let's just sit on a couch together and let's just make out for a long time and let's just, let's just hope and pray that we can resist immorality. Like, like, like that's going to work, you know, for, for people before they're married. That, that's a recipe for disaster. We have to run. And so we have to have safeguards. Now, 
The reality is, many here today, wounded, broken, and have much shame when it comes to their past, and many even with their present in this very area. And it's kind of like, I kind of see suffering and sex in a similar category. It's like a seesaw of life, and they're the two things that turn more people to God than anything else, and they're also two things that turn people away from God more than anything else. Your view on suffering and your view on sex. Because it's either going to break you and humble you and realize that I really need Jesus and I need his grace to forgive me. A lot of people have come to Jesus because they've been broken over their sexual sin. And who does Jesus love the most in the Gospels? Who does he show the most grace to? When he talks to the Samaritan woman who'd been with five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband and Jesus loved her and embraced her and was so gracious to her and gives her the water of life, shows her that she's longing for something more that he's gonna give her and she completely changes in front of him. She runs into town, gets her friends and she's bringing others to Jesus. And Jesus loved the sinful woman in Luke 7 who lets down her hair and is is weeping at his feet and just broken over her sinfulness. And Mary Magdalene, Jesus loves sinners. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, there's no hope for me, I've blown it in the past, consider and read afresh how Jesus loved people that were broken, sexually broken. He has great mercy. We gotta remember the gospel this morning. The gospel is I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who stepped in our place, paid for our sins. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He redeemed us from all lawlessness, and he's purified for himself his own special people now. And so there's great, great hope that is found in Christ. And he's the ultimate one who's going to fulfill these deeper longings that things of this world are going to scratch at, but they're never going to fulfill the itch of the eternal itch to be right with God and to know the God of this universe and to be in him. No relationship on earth is going to fulfill that. And so when we turn to him, he begins to change and heal us and help us to see, to help us to have a much bigger picture than to just living for the dash between your birth date and your death date on your tombstone. Have the eternal picture before you and make your decisions in light of that. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, bring healing to our hearts. Apply your gospel, your blood afresh, And pray that, Lord, we'd find our satisfaction and our joy in you, that we would be able to say that you're more than enough. All that we want, all that we need, give us that contentment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.